I was hoping that we would finish 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to say we're finishing it, but now I've learned not to, you know, get ahead of myself. So we'll hopefully get through it. But if not, then we will save whatever we don't get done for next Sunday. We should get through this. I say that. We should. So as you're turning there, and if you're visiting us, welcome. If you need a Bible, we do have a few Bibles available over here and on the back counter there. So. And since there seems to be a sense of calm and hush here, let's ask God's blessing on this time. Lord, we do ask that you'd bless the study of your word. Lord, that our hearts have been prepared to receive. And Lord, that we don't just read your word as if it's words on a page, but Lord, that it's, it's alive. Your word says of itself that it is alive, that it's powerful, that it separates between soul and soul and spirit joint and marrow and is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Lord, you communicate through your word to us. You encourage us. You convict us. You do so many things. You edify and build up, Lord, through your word. And we have a living relationship with you through your word. And Lord, I pray that we would treasure your word. And Lord, that you'd speak to us now through it. And it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. It feels like I've been gone a, a long time, and in reality, I was here on Wednesday, and we were here on Sunday, but we flew out to California uh, last or on Monday. We were supposed to fly on Sunday, but we flew out on Monday. We got what we call in our household the bump. We like getting bumped from our flights so that we can get compensation so we can fly on another flight, and it's just God's favor for us. And we were really happy about it. And we got to sleep in on Monday morning. But we went out to California for a brief trip because Lynn's uncle passed away. And, and, yeah. and uh, we spent time with the family. And then I, a couple of days ago, my aunt passed away. So if you could keep our families in prayer. But uh, it feels like it's been a long time. Last week, we looked at verses 12 and 13 of First Thessalonians. Uh, verses 12 and 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're going to pick up in verse 14. And if you're visiting, again, let this not be something that you think is being spoken specifically to you because this is the first portion of Scripture that's coming out of my mouth. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 14 says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Are you unruly? I, the, the NIV has it a little different. It basically says, um, we, in, we urge you, brethren, warn those that are idle. And the origin of that Greek word that's used there, for in Old King James, it says unruly. I actually like it because I was in the military, and everything from start to finish when you're in the military has to do with order. Matter of fact, that first evening that I arrived at Marine Corps Depot in San Diego and you're on the bus crammed in there like sardines. I mean a, a normal school bus that I don't know what the normal occupancy would be like two people per each bench and it was a school bus. It was painted drab, olive drab green or dark green 
But we were crammed in there like as many guys could physically fit in there. It was like one of those phone booths stuffed with people. Appendages were sticking out of the windows and things like that. And it was just a short drive from the San Diego airport to Marine Corps Recruit Depot, which was maybe a five-minute drive away. And you're just uncomfortable, and people are smelly, and you've traveled throughout the day. And it was late September, but it was hot in San Diego. It was about 10 o'clock in the evening. And all of a sudden, the drill instructor steps onto the step of the bus and into the front of the bus and starts yelling all these expletives, which I cannot say, because, uh, again, the, hopefully the work that God's done in redeeming my heart and mind but he's just yelling, you maggots, get off the bus, get off, get off, get off. And the very first thing that you're told to do is to stand on these yellow footprints that have been painted onto the pavement. So everybody gets off the bus, everybody's standing on these yellow footprints, your feet are at about a 45 degree angle, your hands are clenched but gently relaxed on your side, and you're looking straight on, not looking at the drill instructor, you're just looking through him if he walks past you. But in the process, that begins the whole thing, the whole military process of being in order, being in ranks, being in files, being organized as a group. And I could tell you even more of my experiences, especially boot camp. You begin to realize the reason why you do those things after the fact, but at first things don't make sense and you're very disoriented by the whole process. But after a week or two, you've kind of adjusted to it, and after a while, and even once you graduate from Marine Corps boot camp, it becomes a permanent part of your life. Some of those things, those structures, the way you do things in a military fashion with structure and order. And again, to you might be thinking, Pastor Mike, are you sure you were in the Marine Corps? But you are the least structured person I know. I know. I know, but that's what this word is talking about. It's talking about, in a sense, the breaking of ranks or not being orderly. And again, within the body of Christ, within the church, there is to be an order. And it doesn't mean that there isn't room for difference in the body of Christ. Or again, to differences of opinions. Or even to, when we were studying the gifts of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it talks about different gifts. Or even talks about the same gifts, but different operations. But it's the same Lord that we're serving. It's the person, and again, too, the, the word has this implication of being disorderly or out of ranks as it applies to the military or soldiers. But in Greek society or culture, it was used of those that didn't show up for work. Again, it was expected, the mindset, the, uh, the structure was you go to work in the morning, and if you didn't go to work because you were lazy, again, you were in a sense breaking the ranks of society. You were acting in an unruly way. And this is what Paul says, warn those that are unruly. And sometimes it's necessary in the body of Christ. Sometimes, again, too, there is a need for structure within the body of Christ, but there's so much freedom within the body of Christ as well. There's so much freedom in, in Jesus. So again, I think the thing that my own personal understanding would be a lot of times it just simply has to do with what's going on in a person's heart. 
I've encountered that over the years. I've been guilty of it over the years. Now, as we're going to the end here, there's just going to be exhortation after exhortation after exhortation. And they almost sound like they're cliches, you know? Again, sometimes we as Christians, you know, someone else asks us for some advice or counsel and we just, you know, rattle things off to them. Well, have you prayed about it? Or do you know that Jesus loves you? Or God's working in a way in your life? I mean, you almost seem like, it seems like sometimes these cliches, at first when you get saved, it's so fresh to experience God's presence working in your life. And even to the reading of God's Word, sometimes the, the simplest truths in God's, God's Word are so profound to us. But the danger is, is at times we just, as we either grow old in the Lord or just our hearts are hardened or maybe even too we're discouraged or disillusioned by things that we see that take place within the body of Christ there's a hardness that sets in and these exhortations even though they may sound like cliches they're so important I think of other times even in my own life where, where I responded to something that was just a simple truth that was shared to me from God's word and just thought I mean, one time I was just going through such a difficult time, and I called my friend Dwight Doval over at Calvary Chapel Appleton. He'd been in ministry probably 10 to 15 years longer, and I really look up to him and, as a, a pastor to me and as someone I admire and, and just his leadership and, and just ministry to me and helping equip me in the ministry over the years. But I remember calling with him and just sharing him these things, and his response was just Romans chapter 8, all things work together for those that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. And I remember thinking, that's it? You know, I want answers to these problems. I want, uh, what should I do? How should I handle this situation? And, and again, too, part of it had to do with being hurt and wounded. And, and I, again, I just wanted to know how to deal with these things. And I thought, well, that's it? And I remember even thinking, well, you don't know the situation, Dwight. I, this isn't going to work out. There's no way these things are going to work out. It took a couple years, two, three years, but I began to see God's hand working in it and actually bringing to pass that simple passage of His Word and me forever thinking, that's amazing, God, how you do that. Same thing I remember another time, too, just breaking down in front of another Calvary Chapel pastor after a conference, just being hurt and, and wounded by a situation. And, and I remember, and he didn't actually quote scripture, although I could find it later, you know, something that was very similar to what it said, what he said. But as he's really uncomfortable with this grown man who really doesn't know, I was 28, 29 at the time, so I was a young guy, but just crying, and, and, and he just says, Mike, you got to buck up. And I'm thinking, buck up? What is that? I'm expecting you to pray for me. I'm expecting you to give me some answers. I'm expecting, again, to how do I deal with these situations? And then it was interesting because of a few days later, as I'm back home here in Minnesota, I'm reading the scripture, and there's a couple places where I think Paul says, Old King James, he says, quit you like men. Be a man. Buck up, basically, is what he's saying. And I remember, again, too, thinking on those exhortations and these things are necessary. They may see, seem simple, 
But the tendency of our heart is sometimes to harden even the, you know, when we need these things, these are simple, but they need to be listened to. And again, too, we should write them down. We should turn to them. We should consider them. Paul says, warn them that are unruly. He says, comfort the feeble-minded. Comfort the feeble-minded. I like the fact that the NIV actually uses the faint-hearted, or actually, um, it, I better turn to it, because in my notes it says faint-hearted, faint-hearted, um, the timid. Encourage the timid, actually, is what it said. But the idea of the, of the word, too, is someone who is not only feeble-minded, but faint-hearted, someone who is timid. And again, too, I think this addresses either a certain personality type or even it, it addresses someone who maybe has been hurt or wounded before and the tendency is to kind of withdraw, kind of tendency to be a little timid, or a little gun-shy, a little whatever. And again, too, that person that comes along that person and comforts them and encourages them because that's necessary within the body of Christ. Support the weak. And again, the, the scripture doesn't tell us specifically, you know, what type of weakness we're talking about. Are, are we talking about somebody that's physically weak to support them? Are we talking about, again, to somebody that is, is weak because, again, too, that's their you know, emotional state or their spiritual state and there's a need for that? I, I love... Of the seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, the church that, again, too, that Jesus commands and says that they are going to miss the hour of the great tribulation that will come to try the whole earth, it mentions concerning that particular church, the church of Philadelphia. He says in verse 7, he says, These things says he that is holy and true, he that has the key of David, that opens and no man shuts, and, and shuts and no man opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, and no man can shut it, for you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. I mean, the one church that stands out of the seven churches that really Jesus is encouraging and commending isn't a church that is identified because of its strength, but it's actually identified because of its weakness. And again, too, uh, the fact that when you are weak, you have to trust in a strength or a power greater than your own. You have to trust in God. But that's also, too, one of the things that God wants us to do as believers, to recognize those that are weak and to support them. The end of verse 14 says, Be patient toward all men. And even as I say that, I think, okay, sometimes we think that we're patient, but in reality, uh, you know, I, I think it has to be asked of others whether or not we're patient. And it also simply implies there are going to be situations where people will rub us the wrong way or, again, to, you know, they'll do something that makes me want to just simply, you know, not be patient. Whether, again, within the body of Christ, it's somebody that at times may, you know, do something that, that either wears on us or grates on us or, or, or just something about that person that I just cannot, you know, endure being around for a period of time. And yet the Lord is wanting there to be a supernatural work of His Spirit. He wants us to be patient with each other. 
Sometimes even too that patience is manifested in just simply listening. When we were in California, and I'll share this story because it, it kind of at first really upset me. And part of the reason it upset me was because I, I felt like the person that was working for Delta Airlines wasn't being patient with me. And I can be a, a patient person, but I can also be, those of you that know me well, I'm a loud person. And I don't mean loud in the sense that I'm loud and obnoxious. I'm just loud because I, I like being loud and, and I maybe have difficulty hearing. And, and we're down in the baggage claim because I told you we got the bump. We're going to collect our, our luggage that had gone on before us the night before. And we walk up and not a single person is at the luggage offices that Delta has at, at LAX. But they have a distinction. They have two separate offices. They've got a, a counter that has where just the normal people go to. And then they have a sky priority for those people that have achieved that level of flying frequently with Delta that you've got an agent that's willing to help you. But when I walked up, nobody no, there was no customers at either one of those. And I looked over at the normal people's place, which is where I was supposed to go, because I'm a normal person. Well, I've achieved, because of all the flying we've done this year, both Lynn and I have achieved silver. And I'm, I'm pretty close to getting gold this year. It's the first time in my life for all the flying that we've done. And I just kind of jokingly come up to the woman that's sitting. See, there's not even a, a, an agent at the regular counter and so the woman that's sitting at the sky priority counter she was on a computer she looked like she was just facebooking to me but i don't know i couldn't see the what she was looking at and just kind of in my loud but friendly way i said so do i have to and before i could say the rest of my sentence could i do i have to wait until someone comes to the other normal side she just cut me off just like that just what do you want sir well, I would like to know if, what do you want, sir? I mean, I, again, too, she kept asking me what I want, but she wouldn't let me finish a sentence. And then the gloves kind of came off a little. Her gloves were already off. I just joined her. No, I, I didn't feel like they came off that much. I just simply communicated to her. And I, again, too, I'm just trying to be patient and gentle and yet at the same time communicate to her, you know, you're cutting me off. Would you please let me finish my sentence? What do you want, sir? I, again, too, she just kept saying, what do you want, sir? Well, I was going to say, what do you want, sir? Okay, I want my luggage. We got bumped last night. Go down the hallway. It's to the left. And again, I just... To me, that's an illustration of a lack of patience. And the scripture says to be patient toward all men. I think even too when it says all men, it's not just speaking about the family, the body of Christ. It's talking about the non-believer as well. Because again, everybody is constantly looking at your life, my life, and evaluating whether or not we really have the Spirit of God working in our lives, overcoming those things that normally in the flesh we would respond the same way as anyone else. Yesterday we were here for a while, worship practice, but also um, Sam and I were working, setting up one of the new media computers that we have. 
And Lynn and I went and grabbed breakfast while some work was being backed up on the computer. And when we came back, there was a minivan that was parked right in the entrance of the church. I'm not talking about in a parking spot. I'm talking about obstructing the entrance of the church. And, and again, too, I didn't, I just simply, a little, you know, hey, we want to come in, little tap on the horn, let you know you need to move. And they kind of gave me a, a snide look, and we parked, and, I, you know, we came in the church, and, and I, they don't even know that it was a church, which maybe I'm kind of glad because they're thinking, well, what kind of a pastor are you to honk at us? Can't you be patient? <laughs> And in a way, I kind of am like, yeah, I need to be a good, because people are looking at your life. And they were actually just looking for a, a, an Outback restaurant, supposedly, that was in Plymouth, and maybe it closed, I don't know. But, but then I walked out, and my wife gave me this great exit. Be nice. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, for a wife that reminds me of those things. And, and, and I, I just, and Lynn was now pulling out, and I was staying behind. And I just went up, and I said, would you mind, please, and I was being very now nice as I could, could, would you mind, please, moving your van a little bit forward so my wife can get out and not be obstructed and see the traffic that's coming both ways? You know, it's interesting because the scripture says that a soft answer breaks a bone. And even as I was gentle that way, then they responded in kind. It was great. It was less like, oh, she hits her husband like... Marvin, move the car forward, you know. And actually, she was the one that was kind of giving me the scowl and whatever when we were, but now she's telling him, move the, move the van forward. And, and then I said, what do you, can I help you? What are you looking for? Oh, we're looking for a restaurant. Oh, so I'm, I'll go inside and look at my computer. And then I came back. I said, yeah, it doesn't look like it's open anymore. And then she says, well, you know. Uh, and then it was nice because she initiated then. She says, I'm sorry if we were in the way. And I said, well, you know, I'm kind of, I'm sorry as well if I sounded, you know, if I was short with you, I said, oh, no, that's fine. And, and then it was all good. Be patient toward all men. Verse 15, see that none render evil for evil unto any man. And again, too, this isn't just to the believer, but to anyone, to any man. Do not respond in kind. Even if somebody treats you poorly, the scripture says not to, to repay in kind. In the book of Romans, Paul quoting the Old Testament, he basically says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay evil. And even at times as I have, you know, the, the tendency of my flesh has kind of been stirred and I want to re either repay evil or I even want to pray that way. God, get them. You know, there's a, uh, one of David's psalms where he says, break out their teeth, Lord, and do all this. And it's just like, wow. <laughs> it, it's pretty harsh for somebody's... Ex and I, in my flesh, I could say, I really like that. Those passages, you know, that speak of God's vengeance towards the wicked or our enemies. But I have to remember that the same kind of justice that I might want for others, the scripture says, with whatever measure you measure to someone else it'll be measured back to you. And at times as my flesh or my heart has wanted to render evil for something evil that was done to me, or even want God to exact some type of vengeance, then God just in his quiet, gentle way says, do you really want me to do that? Because if you do, then 
that's the same standard that you want to be judged by. And as I begin to examine my own heart and realize, no, Lord, I want mercy. I want to be on the receiving end of your grace and of your mercy. And if that's the case, then I want you to show mercy to others. And many times the way in which God shows mercy to others or grace is by what we do. And he says not to render evil for evil unto every man, but ever follow that which is good. It's such a simple rule. Follow what is good. Is it good? You know, again, too, the simplicity sometimes of the scripture. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. It doesn't get any simpler. And maybe at times if we would judge our actions or even our attitudes towards others, we would ask the simple question, am I doing good? Jesus was asked in Matthew chapter 22 and in the other Gospels as well what the great commandment of the law is. And Jesus says in verse 37 of Matthew 22, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. See, all of God's word is reduced to such simple things that he wants and expects us to do. It's love. Our love for God, but also to our love for our neighbor. In one of the other gospel accounts, you know, one of the scribes of the Pharisees, he, he's kind of wanting, a, you know, some type of a way to get, what do you mean? Define this. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, he's looking for a loophole, maybe in a legal sense. Okay, okay, that's what God's word says, but, you know, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And he points out that it is the Samaritan who the Jews had this terrible relationship with the, the Samaritan people and the Jewish people and their hatred for each other went back hundreds and hundreds of years and generations and yet it was the good Samaritan that took care of the Jewish man that had been beaten and left for dead. And Jesus says, he, he puts it back on the guy, he says, which of the three do you think was loving his neighbor, was being good to his neighbor? Which one was the neighbor to him that fell among thieves? And he says it was the Samaritan. He says, go and do thou likewise. It's simple. Not rendering evil to any man, but also following that which is good. He says at verse 15, both among yourselves and to all men. Within the body of Christ, but again to everyone else. Verse 16. I like the next three of them just because of the nature of praise and of being thankful for what God does in a person's life. Real simple, verse 16, rejoice evermore. It's easy to rejoice when things are going well, but are you able to rejoice and take your eyes off of a circumstance or something that would distract you from rejoicing and give thanks to God. And I don't mean the, uh, a false rejoicing, because sometimes you sense that, that, you know, it, it's just kind of, okay, yeah, I know as a Christian I should be rejoicing, so, you know, yeah, I just lost my job, praise the Lord. But there's this kind of like rolling your eyes and shaking your head, praise the Lord. Well, I just got a call from the, the doctor and the news isn't good, but, you know, praise the Lord. It doesn't mean that. 
In order for you to get to the rejoicing part, you have to, again, to take your perspective off of the temporal and the here and now, and again, to allow then the truths of God's word to remind you that this life, there's more than this life. And the fact that Jesus has washed you clean of your sins, that you have an intimate relationship with the living God. Uh, you know, yes, there are trials and things that go on, but then again, too, at the end of this life, and regardless of the weight of these trials, Paul says in the book of Romans that they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us in eternity. And a lot of times, for me to get to that place of rejoicing in the midst of trials, this is where I go. I start reading and meditating and considering and praying and being reminded and then all of a sudden I get to that place where the flesh is no longer governing how I respond to a situation but where the Spirit of God is reminding me of how much Jesus loves me where I will spend the rest of eternity Though the outward man perish, the inward man is being renewed day by day. And I find myself in that place of rejoicing, not in a, a feigned or a faked kind of way, but that it's genuine, that it's real, and that it springs up from within my heart. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. And again, I mean, how many times have you heard from maybe me or from other teachers or pastors or pulpits, just the encouragement to pray. But again, too, prayer isn't something that is a routine. Prayer is something that's about a, a relationship where you're communicating with God. And that was one of the first things that I was told 30 seconds after I got saved. Just the importance of reading God's Word, Acts 2.42, being in God's Word, being in prayer, being in fellowship with other believers, worshiping, and reaching the lost. I mean, they're just simple things, but they're things that, again, too, you should incorporate in your daily relationship with God, where you're constantly in communication with Him. Even as I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about... Jesus standing at the door and knocking to the church of Laodicea. Or Jesus in John chapter, I believe it's 14, says that if any man will open up, that he would come in and, and dwell, and the Father in him would dwell and abide in him. And it, made, it got me thinking on the whole subject of someone living with you. Basically, when we've accept, accepted the gift of salvation, we've invited Jesus Christ to come and live in our hearts to do the work that we could never do in the power of the flesh and to cleanse us and to make us clean from the inside out. And now he, in a sense, becomes a house guest to us. He sees everything that you've got in the house. I mean, you might be embarrassed to have someone come over your house. But Jesus comes into the house of your heart and he knows every thought that you have, every hidden thing maybe that you might try to hide away in a closet or, or, or things that you hope he doesn't stumble upon, your video collection or, or your recent browser history on, your inter, on the internet. I mean, all these different things. Jesus sees and knows everything. He is in your heart. And he's not just a guest, but he's a permanent you know, member now or permanent part of your heart. And prayer is that way. Imagine having somebody living in your house 
and not communicating with them. I mean, imagine, and I think sometimes Christians actually get to that place. I mean, maybe they initially are praying to the Lord over everything, but then they get to the point where they, they're either, their lives, they feel like they've got, gained a wisdom, or even, too, there are times that they feel like they're, you know, I've tried walking with God, and, and it just doesn't work the way I thought, or God's not doing the things that I thought he would. And, and yes, they will acknowledge that they have confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, but they don't have much of a prayer life or much of a, uh, you know, a walk with God because of hurts or because of a hardness of heart, and they stop praying. And I've even recently shared just the importance of praying about every decision you make because the tendency and the temptation sometimes is you've walked with the Lord for a while, so I've recognized this circumstance. I've dealt with this before, and you deal with things kind of the same way because you know the outcome or you think you know how to, the best way to deal with things or even the wise way to deal with things. And we saw that in Solomon's life when we were studying him in 1 Kings. But every circumstance, every situation, we should pray to the Lord. Everything that God is wanting to do, communicate to us, is accomplished through that communication of being in prayer, and it says to pray without ceasing. Verse 18, and everything give thanks. And again, I would tie verses 16 and 18 together, but it says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. The giving of thanks is God's will for you. And even as I think about this, and you know, we're right on the edge, or this week we will be celebrating Thanksgiving. And, and again, too, I want to read a few things, but even before I get there, again, God is working in every way in your life, and He sees things. He's working for good, even through the trials. See, as believers, we're not sheltered or, you know, kept from the trials or the tribulations. Many times as believers, we're actually going through even more trials, going through much more of a refining process. God is putting us in those places. And, and again, too, He works differently in each one of our lives, but He also works the same way in, in each one of our lives. Even earlier where it talks about the weak and the, and the need for support or for patience. And, and again, too, the, the strengthening of the feeble or the timid. Sometimes it's the person that has a lot of strength or abilities. Or again, too, has things that they would trust in, their wisdom, that God is needing to humble. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians when he talks about having this thorn in the flesh, he says, because of the abundance of revelation that had been given to him, for the mighty and powerful way in which God was working in his life, God wanted to keep him from getting too proud. The danger of, of pride, and as a result, and it doesn't tell us what the thorn in the flesh is, but God allows Satan to buffet him so that he wouldn't be too puff, puffed up with his pride. I think back to Genesis chapter 32 when Jacob is coming back and he's encountering his brother Esau after 20 years. And the last thing Esau wanted to do was to kill his brother because Jacob had swindled him out of the blessing and the birthright of his father. And as Jacob has acquired all types of wealth and wives and children, the 12 patriarchs, he has all these things, but he 
doesn't have the ability to defend himself against his brother Esau, who is coming with 400 men. And Jacob is worried that he is going to die after 20 years of his brother being angry and bitter with him. And he's afraid. He's legitimately afraid. And he's even thinking, I'll, I'll part my family into two companies, and if Esau attacks one you know, group, then the other group could escape. Or if he attacks the other group, then the first group could escape. But in the end, he ends up wrestling that night when he could have been getting a good night's rest. He is wrestling with God. And it's not, you know, God doesn't say, okay, now put this move on him and this is how you're going to defeat your, your brother. And, and again, to just buck up and be strong and all these other things. For those, there are those that need encouragement and to be strengthened. But then there are those that need to be humbled and broken. And as the day is breaking and as Jacob is realizing that he has to now encounter this 20-year trial that's been waiting, he wants... God to let him go. He doesn't recognize him as God. But I believe it's an Old Testament theophany, uh, an appearance of the Lord wrestling with him. And he says, let me go, the day's breaking. Actually, God is saying that to him. And now Jacob is hanging on and saying, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Okay, you want a blessing? He puts his hip out of joint. He cripples him. But he says, what's your name? He says, Jacob, swindler. That's basically what it means. Used car salesman. I, if you were a used car salesman, I apologize. I have to say that. I mean, even used car salesmen can get saved. Um, hey, anybody can get saved, okay? I'm, I got saved. So, if, you know, but anyway. But that was his name because they recognized this in him from his birth, that this guy was wanting to, to, to replace his brother. Supplanter is what Jacob means. It was not a good name to have. Sometimes Christian parents name their kids Jacob. You know, look at the definition of the name, and it's like calling your son dirty, rotten scoundrel kind of a thing. I'm just saying. But God then, when he puts his hip out of joint, what does he say? He says, your name isn't that anymore. God changes the name. He redeems him. He says, from this point on, your name will be Israel, which means governed by God. Because as a prince with God, you have power. Power? What are you talking about? I'm crippled. But see, from that point on, and it says that he saw God face to face, and his life was forever changed because of that. He could never, ever rely on his ability to fight or to run. Now, he is grateful that the only thing he can do is trust God. And when he sees his brother, it is a, a beautiful restoration of a broken relationship. And he gives thanks for what God has done. You know, I wanted to read a few things. And again, too, we're on the verge of celebrating Thanksgiving. It was good for me to kind of look at some of this information the event that Americans commonly call the first Thanksgiving was celebrated by the pilgrims after their first harvest in the New World in 1621. The feast lasted three days, and as accounted by attendee Edward Winslow, it was attended by 90 Native Americans and 53 pilgrims. The New England colonists were accustomed 
to regularly celebrating Thanksgiving days of prayer, thanking God for blessings such as military victory or the end of a drought. So it was something that the pilgrims and the Calvinists had brought to this country as a part of their regular observance. It wasn't, again, to a, set on a particular day, but there would be days in which it would be proclaimed, we're going to set aside this day to thank God for all of His blessings. And, and again, too, there's even more history, but in October 3rd of, of 1789, George Washington made the following proclamation and created the first Thanksgiving Day designated by the national government of the United States of America. Even as I read this, and I'll read also too the proclamation that Abraham Lincoln made, it made me think of, again, too, the, the efforts made today to rewrite our history. We were founded as a Christian nation, a, a nation that feared God and acknowledged God. And even though there was the freedom of religion, again, too, for those that Trump somehow try to think separation of church and state, these are men that incorporated this even in the laws and the proclamations that they made. So I want to read what George Washington's proclamation was. He says, Where it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly implore His protection and favor, whereas both houses of Congress have by joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th of November, next to be devoted to the people of these United States to the service of the great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all that is that that all the good that was that is or that will be that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation for the signal and manif manifold mercies and the favor favorable interpositions of his providence which we have experienced in the course and conclusion of the late war for the great decree of tranquility union and plenty which we have since enjoyed for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness and particularly the national one now lately instituted for the civil and religious liberty which we are blessed and the means which we have acquired and diffusing useful knowledge and in general for all the great and various favors which he has been pleased to confer upon us and also that we may unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of nations and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions to enable us, whether in public or private stations, to perform our several and relative duties properly and punctually, to render our national government a blessing to all people by constantly being a government of wise, just, and constitutional laws discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed to protect and to guide all sovereigns and nations, especially such as have shown kindness unto us, 
and to bless them with good government, peace, and concord, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue. Did you catch that? I mean, he's talking about evangelism, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue and the increasement of science among them and us and generally to grant unto all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows to be best, given under my hand in the city of New York the third day of October, the year of our Lord, 1789. I want to read Lincoln's proclamation as well where he establishes it as the fourth um, Thursday of the month, but I'll just read a portion of it. And I'd encourage you, Google it, find it, and read it, because it's interesting to me, because even reading Abraham Lincoln's proclamation, you could almost apply that to how divided our nation is today. And this is now Lincoln writing this proclamation after the end of the Civil War. But as he describes these things and the need to thank God, I think it would serve our country well because we are as divided as a nation as there ever will be in at least our nation's history, even though we haven't taken up arms to fight each other. The way in which we are divided and fighting this cultural war we're in is so much, uh, I think, you know, demonstrates the divide to an even greater degree. But a couple of lines from his proclamation. He says, No human counsel has devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who dealing with us in anger for our sins has nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed fit and proper that they should solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledge with one heart and voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens and every part of the United States and those who are at sea and those that are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwells in the heavens. One other, ver one other portion. Well, actually, I, I've got to read it just to get there. And I recommend to them that while offering up the auspicious just, justly due to him for such regular deliverances and blessings, they do also with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in this lament, lamentable, lamentable civil strife in which we have unavoidably engaged and fervently implore the interposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. Being thankful. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench. You know what? I'm not going to finish. <laughs> this will be good. We can look at this, the, the closing verses next week. Hopefully we'll look at them next week. But I think it's a good place for us to stop with just that exhortation, that reminder of the importance of being thankful. And one thing I will say, I'm thankful for you as my church family. I'm so thankful for the work that God has done. 
I'm so thankful for my wife, my daughter and son and thankful for the salvation that I know in Jesus Christ and I am just thankful that he is coming to redeem this fallen world that we live in. But until he does, we have been blessed with so many things. And I think sometimes we don't remember or we become just, we take the things that God has blessed us with for granted. Just stop, maybe write down a list or think or consider the ways in which God has blessed you and the things that you need to be thankful for. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. Lord, we're grateful for your word. Lord, we're grateful for these exhortations as well. Lord, I pray that uh, you would be doing the work that you desire in our midst and in our hearts. And I just ask you these things in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys. Don't forget to join us on Wednesday night if you're so inclined, if you're not cooking and preparing for Thanksgiving.